furious <laughs> before we right before we started work recording. Session. Yeah, our work sessions frequently started with an hour of technical difficulties that you'll <laughs> never get to experience with us. Dear listeners. Hey everybody, it's the Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. I'm Alan. Again, I'm back. <laughs> back. Uh, I love that. I love that like awkward pause where the guest isn't sure what to do and I'm pointing at them on the video chat. There's there's never any uh, discussion of how to handle the intro. You just throw I, it out randomly in the middle of a conversation. Yeah, I feel like I was less ready for it that time. Uh, Al, your dad backed us on Patreon. It's great. Yeah, I figure he's he'll be uh, listening to this one. Hey, Dad. <laughs> uh, no, he uh, he was. Uh, I guess I told him that I was on this, and shortly thereafter, he started talking to me about other episodes and he'd clearly been re- listening to the back catalog. And then, uh, he called me up one day and he was like, what's Patreon? Is that a real thing? You know, like, <laughs> are, are they just going to rip me off and steal my identity? And I was like, no, 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 they're legit. And he's like, okay, cool. <laughs> That's funny. He did his due diligence. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Ask a thir- ask a millennial. So last time we had you on as an introduction, I told some stupid story about you in English class. So I decided I'm going to try to come up with a story until I run out. Every year I used to take spring break and drive down and see you at the University of Georgia. Um, I have an Adam Kerbelman story that I'm going to preempt you with. Um, (laughs) uh, There's no airport in Athens, Georgia. I mean, not one that college students can afford to fly to. So uh, Adam would fly into Atlanta. I'd pick him up and then take him to Athens. And the first time that happened... Um, Adam had never, to my knowledge, been to Georgia before. And I'd been there for, you know, the better part of a school year, I guess. And, uh, I picked him up from the Atlanta airport and got on the interstate and Adam said, we're going the wrong direction. And I was like, no, no, no. I looked at a map like right before I got here. Um, and then about 15 minutes went by and Adam said, are you ready to turn around yet? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, and sure <laughs> like Adam had looked down from the airplane and he was like, oh, I'm going to go that way later on. And then I didn't. And he just knows that shit. <laughs> That's a great response too. He just kind of sat there peacefully waiting, waiting, waiting for an appropriate time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Everything getting thinner and thinner. There's like fewer and fewer signs of civilization. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't worth pushing the point before it was ready to be heard. (laughs) Uh, No, I had probably... Atlanta is a unique city because there's a couple of monumental landmarks. Like, you can know where you are in the city pretty well if you know where Stone Mountain is relative to you at any time. It's a big, big... Not necessarily visible, but it stands... There are signs for it everywhere from every direction. (laughs) And so when you see, when you know you should be driving away from Stone Mountain and you start oh. seeing signs pointing you the opposite direction, you know, you're what not going to What the hell is Stone Mountain? And how have I never seen a picture of it before? <laughs> For wow. me, navigation like that is all about landmarks, which also relates back to procedurally generated content, sort of, which is what we're going to talk about today. So our last episode, we did corrections, um, which I think came up in the course of conversation with Alan about what we should talk about. Yeah, I envisioned but, that being like a five-minute aside. <laughs> the very first thing you brought up was what we're going to do today. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was um, thinking about um, procedurally generated generated content, which is uh, you know telling a comp- like giving a computer a really loose description of something and letting the computer fill in the details for potentially thousands of different variations on that, like riffs on that idea. And when you first brought it up, it was because of the episode where we were talking about uh, Dungeons and Dragons and like uh, role playing and stuff, which I thought was an interesting place to kind of get your head around the idea of procedurally generated content. Yeah. Um, but I mean, just to keep it concrete, uh, even before we had, even before most people had a computer in their house to generate procedurally generated content, if they thought to and uh, had access to the right code or whatever, like early Dungeons and Dragons manuals had like uh, ways to roll up random encounters. You know, they're like roll three mm-hmm. D20s. And the first one is like, how crazy is this threat? The second one, like what kind of threat? You know, I don't know. Um, there'd be just a little description. And it's like roll some dice and here's like, if you, if you need a quick idea for like danger that people can face, here you go. And that, and that's basically the idea that, you know, made, for example, Minecraft. So, uh, addictive is that there's like this endless infinity of worlds that you can, you can explore. Uh, so when you say procedurally generated content, what's the procedure part? Okay. Yeah. So, Maybe I'll round this to... in sort of the, uh, um, how, how can I say this? Um, before this, we started doing this on purpose with computers. We didn't need a name for it, you know? So like when you talk about procedurally generated content, you're talking about it happening on computers or with maybe a couple examples with like rolling encounter tables in your Dungeons and Dragons manuals. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're just experiencing the universe, like I'm going to go play football and it's going to be in many ways, very similar to every football game I've ever played. And in many ways, different from any of them. Um, we didn't need a name for that. Right. But then we start making video games. And like, you think about something like super Mario brothers, every instant of your Mario game was scripted by hand by a person, right? Like, all of those little mushroom creatures are in the same place, going in the same direction at exactly the same moment in the game. That's a lot of work. So like if you can offload some of that content generation to a compression algorithm to, to a generation algorithm, right? Right. right? Something where you're like, okay, how about I tell you how many milliseconds it is since midnight and you use that to feed it into a random number generator. And, um, based on these rules that I'm going to lay out, make a Mario level, then you just have to get those rules right. And you automatically have, or or you, you know, uh, get for free the other 30 million Mario levels. Oh man, 30 million Mario levels would be heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Just never stop. Just keeps on scrolling. Yeah. I mean, you could, you know, I I'm, I feel like I've read about that as a real project, like the Infinite Mario. Yeah, I think I think um, that may be its name. There was a level in. There's probably been a bunch of levels like this, but there was a particular level in like Mario Super Mario World, and you could kind of like bypass the pipe or something that got you to the boss. And if you did, 
you reached this spot that was over lava and you could fly if you had a cape and you could just fly forever. And it was hard because you had to know the, like the trick. It was kind of like riding, like get, getting up to speed on a swing to fly in Mario 3. You could do it forever, but you had to kind of get the cadence of the character. And I cannot tell you how many hours I spent trying to fly because I was like, there has to be an end to this. And it was just an occasional fireball would come up and get me and I would never get there. And I've, I've always wondered about that level. I've never actually looked it up, but I've always wondered if that was just there to fuck with people like me uh, or if there was something exciting at the end. You know, the... The so Pac Man is a uh, I think it's Pac Man is essentially procedurally generated. It'll keep going and going and going until it run like there's some buffer overrun or something, and then it stops. So the last level of it just disintegrates into a bunch of <laughs> digits on a screen, like half generated, and it's just it that's just the end. There's no ceremonious ending for <laughs> that. Wasn't a thing they worried about. Back when they were making games. <laughs> Will it run longer on like modern emulators? Huh? Um, I may be wrong that it's not procedurally generated. It yeah, might be they just I, made I was that about many to uh, call you out on that because so that's true that you get that. I, I, I think that is true of Pac-Man in particular that like, yeah, at the end, some memory <laughs> gradually gets overwritten by gibberish. But uh, <laughs> no, Pac-Man was certainly a game where uh, some person or small group of people uh, spent hours and hours and hours and hours sort of going over the exact details of what each of those levels is going to look like so that it'd play correctly, which is a lot of work, you know? So I, I think I think a place where procedurally... The place that I picture when I picture procedurally generated content, um, and I don't think it actually was procedurally, procedurally generated. That's a really enjoyable word to pronounce correctly. <laughs> it's, like, God, it's, it's a struggle, but they're like rewarding sounds to make. Um the game I think of that made me kind of aware of this happening or about to happen was Grand Theft Auto. And I, I have not been like c- original, a consistent like bird's eye view Grand uh, Theft Auto. I want to say like Vice mm, City. <laughs> okay. Is that a Grand Theft Auto game? It's whatever uh, that was out right. when I was in college. Um, and I had definitely not played a game before that, that I would have guest had like endless content uh and this one all of a sudden i was like it just it just felt it just felt endless it just felt like i could drive in the city forever and if i got out of it i would just be driving across america and uh it also had a bunch of other features of like modern games that we'll probably talk about that like kind of controlled what the computer could do at any time or what you could see and stuff but um i just i remember that being really mind-blowing and thinking why have we not done this before um and why do games have to end (laughs) well yeah did you ever play uh diablo uh i did that was actually one of the other games i i spent a lot of time with that one that one didn't give me that feeling though yeah so it was a less open world right one you're in like a cramped ass dungeon for 90 percent of it and like clearly you're gonna get to hell or whatever at some point (laughs) um but uh, if you played that game several different times, um, your loot would be different. Like the exact layout of the dungeon would be different. They'd have those sort of scripted set pieces here yeah. and there. But uh, that was certainly a game where they were like, we don't have time to create fucking a tunnel from the surface of the earth to hell. <laughs> um, let's, you know, hit what well, let's let's draw the highlights by hand and then let the computer crank out a bunch of tunnels and 
goblins or whatever. Oh, interesting. Now that you say that, that sounds familiar. Was that one of the first games to do that? Like one of the first Actually, ones? no. Um, it was the first one that made anyone any money. But uh, <laughs> people had been doing exactly that um, for probably a couple decades at that point in uh, roguelikes, which are... I sent you a link to one of those. Um, those would be like uh, one college computer labs labor of love you know <laughs> and so uh they w- they focused from very early on really heavily on sort of randomly pop like randomly creating this world that you can explore because one they didn't have time to do it themselves and two they wanted to play their own game you know mm-hmm. um, the graphics in this for reference from what i see look like uh it came out of a computer lab in the 1970s yeah like <laughs> dragon warrior you know, like, like <laughs> overhead, it's like, it's like uh, a grid map. You're a little bro- at sign walls are little hash signs. And like the, uh, it's interesting how every time we talk about video games, we kind of look at the set of games and the set of like sort of gaming dynamics that haven't really changed and don't need to change. Like Mario, for instance, is always a good example. It's like, it was, it was the same game in like 1975 or whatever when original side-scrolling Mario came out it's the same game that you can play now um it's just like marginally improved graphics and like a slightly better interface and slower uh delay on button presses and um so there's there's clearly there's like two things going on with video games there's there's this uh entertainment aspect that we continue to kind of perfect and uh sell to people better and better and then there's the just just a pure desire to have things look more real or feel more organic or something so dungeons in diablo yeah and that was you were saying hand painting you hand paint some of them and then you rotate some set pieces right the bosses and then you just sort of like fill in all the details around it um and there's sort of an inverse to that approach like a reason that you might procedurally generate content um you're gonna hand build like you know just uh uh, meticulously hand build a whole city or city block or something like that um and then what you can do is uh procedurally generate details right is this window cracked a little or, you know, does it have a sticker on it? Like, you know, what kind of car is this? Like, does it have bumper stickers? Is it scuffed up or is it well-maintained? Like, you know, you can um, define sort of, okay, given this scene, fill in all the details to like an insane level. Um, So if you place, you know, 15 pizza shops around this city that you've built, you know, you're sort of like, hand placing these buildings but then you're leaving it to uh some software to fill in the details and make it seem like you didn't just say okay you know pizza joint dry cleaners city hall you know whatever so it feels like different pizza joint but if you're talking about a game like uh uh uh, grand theft auto it's like you you start to you recognize if the pattern's not complex enough it's being generated the random pattern's not complex enough You still get a weird vibe from it. Doesn't make yeah. it not fun to you play. Start to see, you start to <laughs> see the like strings and mirrors and curtains, you know. <laughs> Have you played Minecraft at all? <laughs> I haven't at all, but I feel like that's a perfect transition into Minecraft. 
No, I haven't played Minecraft at all. I know Joe? it's what the kids are into. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure I've played like original. Really? I've played it. I've played just a few times, and I'm not I'll even sure. I'll give you I've been the like the right eight game. minute or, or eight second pitch on Minecraft. Um, you when you start the game, you are empty handed on a beach somewhere, and it's dawn. And if you like, try and grab some sand. Then you have some sand, and you can put it somewhere. If you like, you can like knock down a tree with your hands and have some wood. And uh, eventually, the sun sets and it gets dark, and monsters come out. And that's pretty much the whole game. And the the genius of it is it's like um, totally open-ended and it's a different beach every time. And the world that is generated each time you start the game is about, uh, I think it's about eight times the surface area of Earth and you're the only person on it. Um, and the only reason that it stops at about eight times the surface area of the Earth is that's when we run out of like... Uh, I want to, that's when we run out of integers. So hmm. it's, it's just like you, uh, Kirk, you were talking about earlier with Pac-Man, like you can push this game to the edge where like number overflow starts happening and the world gets discontinuous and there are just like tears in the fabric of reality. And when you're um, talking about that, what you're talking about is actual, they have hit a physical upper limit. Like there are, there's not enough physical room for electrons in a piece of memory like right. th i think that part is really interesting because it ends up a physics problem well yeah i mean it just depends on how many bits are your integers and i'm sure that um with time and appropriate hardware someone could go like patch in 128 bit integers to <laughs> every right. spot in the minecraft source where you need to do that but uh what I do recognize about Minecraft from my external profession, like external attention, like when I say I haven't played, it doesn't mean I haven't watched carefully that people are playing it. It's a fairly low-fi game. Um, it yeah. feels not too far really. off of like the, what the, the way we were describing the dungeon games earlier. Like they're yeah. made up of blocks. Those blocks have patterns. There's only like five patterns. <laughs> it's either rock or water or grass or right. you know whatever and then you yeah. have to like you have to like mine those elements to get them to use them for things right yes. like you have to demolish a block somewhere to move it somewhere else which means it's a closed system <laughs> yeah and you can thinking. like build a house it's it's legos sorry lego forgive me this is why you do this is why you do the correction episodes <laughs> on the fly you just corrected that you didn't say legos plural properly is that improper i'm sorry that's not the plural of lego it's lego is lego like sheep it's not zebras it's zebra is it zebra as well i don't know <laughs> but yeah you're the I one mean... who's supposed to know <laughs> um yeah no like Minecraft is a super cool game precisely, be, you know, despite the fact that it does look like not that great. Um, it puts you in the middle of like any one of an infinite number of um, infinitely large worlds. And you can like move stuff around and build yourself a house, right? And that's why we should Here's find out how many copies of Minecraft have sold, but like Minecraft essentially owns the 16 and under. You want to market. look that up, Jones? So that's super relevant, right? Like I'm aware that that's the market that they have uh, 
locked down. It's trying to understand. Like I've watched kids watch other kids play Minecraft. And when I try to get my head around the dynamic of the game, I, I don't understand what's compelling about that part. But I guess. Yeah, and so I was super pumped about brain. Minecraft for a little bit. And then I was like, what am I doing here? But so and, the note that you put on the outline said Minecraft is addicting. It is. So because where does that come it's from? It's like you just if you get bored of what's going on in Minecraft, you pick a direction, you walk that direction. And there's 50,000 square miles to explore. And um, it's important to note that the code that is in that game that generates the world is super great. I mean, it's really good. And like, I always like to build a house on a lagoon. And if you go far enough in any direction, you'll eventually find like an awesome lagoon. (laughs) (laughs) Is, uh, is Minecraft? Well, let me clear up Minecraft because I don't think I've ever actually been to Minecraft's website before, which is weird. And I'm embarrassed (laughs) to say that. Because I'm looking at it and it doesn't look familiar. I have played like weird Minecraft versions on my iPad that I think are like spin-offs or like mini iOS versions or something um, that uh, don't look anything like what I see on the website. Um, and so I don't really know anything about Minecraft, I guess. But I found some interesting Minecraft statistics. All told, uh, 25 million co- 25 and a half million copies of Minecraft have been sold. This game's been out since like 2009 or something. Mm-hmm. Microsoft and, bought it to put on HoloLens. It's a big In the deal. last 24 hours, 4,500 copies have been sold. Wow. <laughs> sold. That's crazy. I think and I bought it. Awesome. I probably got a license somewhere with a Minecraft with my name on it. That just ticked up to 4,500 even. <laughs> that's a, that's an active counter that you're reading from yeah microsoft owns it now so they got fancy i guess yeah am i am i gonna get addicted to this if i download it uh p- possibly <laughs> and like wow. eventually you'll be like Say no, no to games this game and like i could go take a welding class and build something <laughs> so like what am i doing with my time you know yeah at least that's what happened to me right interesting well that's kind of the conclusion i come to with all games except then i go do a hobby and the hobby's the same thing at the end of the day (laughs) right um and you know i'm probably not going to make a mountaintop citadel in real life no matter how many welding classes and masonry classes i take (laughs) would you call uh baked goods procedurally generated content (laughs) I mean, you followed a procedure to generate content. (laughs) I made you a pie. (laughs) Yeah. So um, here's here's something I wanted to say. Um, I think what I think is so cool about just this whole idea that you can use computers to generate millions and millions of riffs on an idea is it encourages you to think about like... So these don't have to be like game worlds. I feel like most of the examples we've given so far are game worlds, but like there are Twitter bots and stuff that Mm -hmm. uh, procedurally generate, but but you, or like cool robots, right? You could make a cool robot generator that just like um, had a bunch of sort of different chassis styles and you could have tank treads or legs or a hover bottom or a single wheel like Rosie from the Jetsons. 
and uh, you know, you, you can just sort of use this computer to like spit out as many of these things as you want. The movie World War Z, um, they needed like 30,000 zombies for something. And rather than hire 30,000 extras, they, um, you know, made a zombie generator and just cranked out 30,000 zombies to, to shamble around. Um, and it's cool because it gets you thinking about like the space of all possible zombies, you know, you, you imagine sort of like a 30 dimensional space where one dimension is like, is the zombie male or female? Um, is the zombie tall or short? Is the zombie, um, fat or skinny? Is the zombie, uh, hairy or bald headed, right? Is the the zombie missing limbs? Is the zombie, uh, you know, bulging on its face, right? And you imagine a point moving through all of those dimensions and, um, any points that are near each other in that space would result in zombies that basically look similar alike that look very similar to one another, but then you can sort of move farther and farther away and get a zombie that is unrecognizable from the other. And that's true of robots as well. You know, you can envision this sort of multidimensional space that contains all possible whatever. So I like that you just made, we started talking about like video game worlds, like, uh, an endless video game world where the computer as you explore the computer's kind of like generating space or maybe it generated before or whatever but you can kind of just explore forever in a direction the computer's making it up and then you you just kind of switched to the creatures in the world which essentially is the same thing right like a, a creature with an endless variety of arms or weapons or uh, facial features or personality types aggressive happy sad whatever um that one is an interesting progression because it immediately took me to thinking about genetic code and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves <laughs> in the episode. You, you uh, once called me up on like a Thursday night. This is five or six years ago. <laughs> and you were like, I want to find out a way to write a program that processes genetic code, DNA, and spits out music on the other side. <laughs> like you had this idea for procedurally generating musical tones from genetic code. Breed new songs. And you're like, I bet that would be beautiful as shit. <laughs> And we both been, went back to whatever we were doing professionally at the time and never came back <laughs> to the idea. But it comes up in conversation all the time when I'm talking to musician friends. Yeah, and there are um, procedurally generated songs for sure. Like people have released albums where they like defined a song generator and then kicked it off for 50 minutes and released it as an album. This is actually a really good place to pimp one of our guests that we got coming up. Um, a buddy of our buddy of our Scott, who... Uh, the dude that officiated my wedding, but he's a, a musician on a level where he like he knows musical theory like we know the shit we talk about every day. <laughs> um, I frequently talk to him about uh, music in this context where like specifically what he wants to talk about in that episode is how pop music is bullshit. <laughs> that was the text that started the conversation. That's going to be a tough one. basically, what he presented is a really concrete example of iterations on a really popular theme right now. And you can track year by year the things that got popular and then proliferated through pop music until a new thing popped up. And this year, it's this really distinct... That's valid. 
that everyone recognizes really quickly if you play oh. like five seconds of it back to back for like the top 10 songs on the charts right now. Yeah, I mean, that's procedurally generated music. <laughs> we have a hit band. Right. And everyone's like, ooh, that's cool. <laughs> Let me take these 17 things they do and mix them up into songs that all sound the same. <laughs> we're, um, we're cheapening the, the term here. <laughs> so what did you just say, Jones? Uh, the, the leap from procedurally generating like characters to uh, DNA procedurally generating humans. Okay, so yeah, so what you're talking about is uh, code, right? So the thing I was bringing up earlier is, I mean, you just said it, genetic code, right? Like it's just this idea of here's That's a set of inst- here's a set of instructions to be fed through a processing mechanism, and the idea of like uh, <laughs> a womb, we call it, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have a very nice processing mechanism there. <laughs> I'd like to inspect it further. <laughs> But the the Markov chain thing that I was bringing up before is how you do, uh, like Twitter's Tay, was meant to be that kind of like it's just it's a a a program that responds to the output of its own program as as far as I understand it. Yeah, what what you can do is you can take any corpus of text, uh, say like you know pick an author the writings of Shakespeare, and um, you scan through them, and every time you encounter a word, sorry, every time you you choose a number, right? Let's say two. Uh, you take every two consecutive words, um, and you say, okay, um, the word soft just followed the word but. Yeah, then the word, you know, but soft what light through yonder window, right? That's a bunch of pairs of words, but soft. Soft what, what light, light through, through yonder, yonder window, right? And so you look at all of those pairs and count them up and go through all of Shakespeare's writing. And, you know, if you encounter, uh, you know, what light several times, then that counter is going to get incremented for that pair of words. So you generate this huge dictionary of like how many times this word followed that word. Um, And then... Pattern recognition. once you've done that, you um, start back at the beginning and you start, you know, let's say you encountered um, a million distinct pairs of words. You, that's, that's inaccurate, but close. Um, corrected later. You, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll come back. Um, you start generating random numbers and doing a, a sort of uh, weighted coin toss or weighted die roll, I guess, um, so that, you know, if you've seen but soft 30 times <laughs> and um, but where 150 times, you're more likely to see but where, you know, right? You flip a coin and if you get one to 30, then you say soft. If you get 31 to 181, then you say where. Um, and so then you do that a bunch of times and you get things that are obviously gibberish, but if you look really like if, if you just say them, they like flow reasonably and they sound like English and you just sort of recognize that maybe they go into loops or like it's, 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 it's uncanny. Is right. The word That's the perfect term for it, right? Like it's things. uncanny. Yeah. It's, it's, there's an uncanny, like it feels right, but it and doesn't so, yeah, pain the right like data. Alive. It feels alive. Yeah. There's a subreddit natural. called subreddit sim, subreddit simulation. I don't know, but it's all just 
Markov chains being run on the uh, front pages of all these other different subreddits. And it's this <laughs> phenomenally effective parody of everything else on Reddit because it feeds your own, it feeds their own gibberish back into them. <laughs> I really like it. Echo chambers. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a, uh, there's a video a very high production quality, like short film. I think it's a few minutes long. It has the main guy, like the CEO founder from Silicon Valley in it. And it's, uh, Oh yeah. We'll put it in the show notes. It's, yeah, uh, this, it's really interesting. It's a script that was written by one of these processes. Like you just described. Um, <clears throat> oh, wow. Yeah. This, so the script is, is generated algorithmically by a computer. I'm not sure what specific process it uses, and then uh, it's like a three-person film, and they shoot it, and they clearly uh, they act out this gibberish. And it is entirely gibberish, but while you're listening to it, uh, seeing them act it out, your brain is fighting itself. Your brain is like, I just, I can't, I, they have to be saying something real, and you can't, your brain is just constantly trying to process it and figure what it out, figure it out, and you can't. And then you get this really interesting complexity on top of it where the actors and the directors have decided how the gibberish, like kind of in this like emotional way or this human way, they've like decided what the scene's about. They've decided what the, like the tone of like this gibberish is. Gibberish yeah, and so it becomes this incredibly, uh, it's this very powerful kind of dark, uh, dark three or four minute short. And it is so weird. I watched it probably 10 times in a row because you keep wanting to get something out of it that's not there. It is so bizarre. And uh, this relates to a thing that I, th I think came up on one of our shorty episodes where we were talking about uh, writing versus like podcast as a delivery mechanism for th thoughts, essentially, or more so uh, information like delivered news kind of stuff like i want to know what's going on in the world like there's a lot more data contained in someone speaking to you about it than can really effectively be crammed into writing which makes writing you know versus speaking very different um and part of it is because it, ha it carries this extra data layer that you're kind of talking about right inflections head movement like all these extra things that happen on a video that give you information about what's happening in the screen. If you take a thing that matches the right cadence for all that stuff, but you strip out the main, like the data that is actually meant to be conveyed via that interaction is what's actually being taken out of there if it's just gibberish. But if it flows correctly and people deliver it as if it's real, like it's, it's, a, it's an interesting problem because it, uh, the context where this comes up for me a lot is when I'm talking to people about like the future of VR. Because when I say, no, when you pop on your headset and there's three other people in that room with you, they're actually like being mapped also. It's a surprising amount of presence. They don't buy it. They're just like, I don't, I just don't see how, but that's the layer you're talking about. Like a no, head we love to get fooled between heads <laughs> and hands. Like it really feels like the person is there to an uncanny degree. It's like, it, it's, it's weird. But once people get used to it, it's really going to change like offices you know it takes oh, yeah. you a couple years to get used to it when you're first born 
and then you kind of figure it yeah. out <laughs> and you get yeah. comfortable with your hands and the people around you. <laughs> um, so I thought, I just thought of a, uh, an early analog example of procedurally generated content. Um, Jorge Luis Borges, uh, what is it? The library of Babel, I think it's called, but he has that short story about an infinitely large library that contains every book, right? Every book of every length, every possible ordering of letters in every alphabet of every length. And you just sort of like wander through this and like pick up a book and there is a chance because every book is in there, there is a chance that it'll be the best book you've ever read. Right. <laughs> but there's, you know, really a much, much larger chance that it will be on an, an unintelligible string of gibberish. Right. But it's, I, I really like that, that, that it still has that idea that all of these books already exist and we're just sort of trying to navigate this space and find ones that have some sort of interesting content to them. Yeah, this is not a new conversation. Like philosophers have been th talking about things like this in super nebulous like there's some allegory involving monkeys on typewriters eventually typing out all like the complete works of Shakespeare if you just had enough monkeys just slamming keys uh, eventually uh, the works I read of that they actually gave monkeys some typewriters. <laughs> That's the funny thing about all this. It's like it's this very real <sighs> space. We're talking about AI and all the stuff we talked about in the last episode with the systems we use to generate this stuff. Like it's this phil it's this this is a problem we've been talking about conceptually for thousands of years. Yeah. And we're running into it in this space where it's like, oh, I could actually compute. Yeah, now, now we have simulation power. We can right. run those. So we're actually, so we're, it's like in the last one, we were talking about planets and we were having that, we were talking about like how they, astronauts on the moon redid that ex, ex, experiment with the hammer and the, and the feather. And just, I, I love the idea that it was like, oh, we're going to be up in the moon where there's a vacuum. Let's, let's run this thing we've talked about for thousands of years in a theoretical context. The hey, it worked. Moon. <laughs> how cool must that guy have felt? I'd. And we talked about this in the last episode, but Gilbert, look it up. It's an astronaut holding a feather and a hammer on the moon. He's like, <laughs> 2,000 years later, we're proving this hypothesis. It's so cool. So when, you, when you're talking about the, the Markov chain thing, the way that, that that thing taught itself by assessing those patterns in the way that you just broke down, it, it seems sort of parallel, at least, to the machine learning stuff that we were talking about on the AI episodes in the sense of it's generating this algorithm for creating things that sound like conversation based on an assessment of, you said it, this corpus of data. Um, so in a sense, it's, it's starting, it's generating its own. How do I sound like a person writing thing from people who have it's mimic software. Right. And so you can, you know, in both of those cases, you'd use the same software, um, but run it on a totally different corpus and your machine might, you know, output short stories or win jeopardy, right? Like just depending on what you're feeding it in the first what place. What you teach it to do. Cause like Jones, or you can give it Shakespeare or Faulkner or right. Uh, like as Jones frequently points out, it took Faulkner 
30 years of growing up as a human to be able to do that. Right. (laughs) Teaching a thing through an incremental process. And he himself encountered a lot of words, you know, and and gathered up a bunch of data about how they fit together. But we can do that now with computers. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about when you talk about machine learning and how the algorithms work and the the AI piece where it's sort of, It gets into that territory of why to take this stuff seriously. <laughs> um, and a technique that you guys haven't talked about yet. Um, it's, uh, it's not having its heyday right now in the way that sort of neural nets and uh, reinforcement learning are. But there's a, a, an old and well-studied class of uh, artificial intelligence algorithms called genetic algorithms. And uh, they sort of have a, a, a two-part structure to them. Um, the first part is you sort of define this space of all possible. Uh, one example, uh, is like a jet engine exhaust port, right? What shape should our jet engine exhaust port be? And the, this is the, uh, output of our engine, right? Um, and we expect for it to be primarily used in, these ranges, right? Given that information, we can simulate how well a given shape of jet engine exhaust port is going to to function, and we can score it, right? If you give me a jet engine exhaust function or or exhaust port, I can be like, oh, that's a pretty good one. You know, it's a 75. Um, Then if you also come up with a way to randomly spit out jet engine exhaust ports, you can start searching this space of all possible jet engine exhaust ports. But like, so what you do with these genetic algorithms is um, you generate a random population of jet engine shapes, right? Test them all, take the ones that do really well, and you mate them. And so this is where you need to sort of like, this is the fun part of working with genetic algorithms. You have to figure out what it means. Like if I have this exhaust port and this exhaust port, and I want to give them three baby exhaust ports, like how how can i combine them in a meaningful way but then what you do is you like create a population of a thousand exhaust ports score them all take the crappy ones and you know kick them out and fill that space with offspring of the ones that did well and you just repeat that thousands of times and eventually you come up with a great solution to whatever your problem is and and the only requirements on the kind of problem that it can solve the only restrictions on the kind of problem it can solve are um, you have to be able to combine these things in a meaningful way. Like you have to be able to breed two of them. Uh, and you have to be able to like, given one, you have to be able to tell how good it is. Well, third, you need to be okay with killing millions of baby exhaust ports. That you millions don't like. and millions. <laughs> but you don't kill them. You just disregard them. They still <laughs> exist in that space of all possible exhaust ports. You just put them out in the woods. And if they can't take care of themselves. <laughs> you send them to a farm where they have plenty of room. <laughs> oh, it is off for heaven. <laughs> I the uh, algorithms. I I love uh, um the genetic algorithms that I've I think they're genetic algorithms that I've seen of a like ostrich learning to walk. Or I've seen a bunch where it's like caricatures yeah. learning to walk. And uh they're really interesting videos to watch because you can see <clears throat> 
um, how many you can see them at different generations. Like they'll show you the the first iteration of this this structured creature that looks like a dinosaur, or looks like a person, or looks like a dog, and you'll see it try to walk and it just doesn't go anywhere. It's like a structure of blocks, like in, like what you'd learn in art class, uh, and it just falls over, it just collapses. And then you see uh, the tenth generation, it kind of like wobbles and falls, and it looks. And then by the hundredth generation or whatever, this thing is like running around like an organic living creature on Earth. And it's really interesting because as you watch it progress, it does exactly what a baby, it just looks like a baby. A baby like pushes itself up and then just collapses on itself again. And then a few days later, it's like wobbling, but you're like, dude, you're not using your legs right at all. What are you doing? (laughs) But they're getting around. And then uh, a few years later, uh, they're running, running track. And it's, uh, gosh, there's just so many. I encourage people to uh, search YouTube for, you know, genetic algorithm. I Walk thought you were going to say videos of babies falling over. <laughs> I follow a subreddit called Children Falling Over. It's hilarious. Hey. What I love is when the mods bounce something and they put up the note that says, your video must contain a child falling over. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I saw one the other day. Oh, man, there are two responses here that I want to share. I'll share the other one. My favorite children falling over videos are the ones where it's like a parent playing with one child. And they're like kicking a ball back and forth or tossing, tossing a football or something or riding a bike. And out of nowhere, the other child comes in and just gets plowed over. <laughs> that must happen so many times as a parent raising children. Where you're like, hey, just having fun with this one. And then you just totally wreck the other kid. By <laughs> they bounce off one another. Um, uh, shit, I lost my train of thought. Oh, okay. Uh, so... What that makes me think of is like the way we've talked about, we talked about a lot of game playing AIs in previous episodes and, and the, the extent to which they're like a yes, no game, a game where you win or you lose is easier to figure out by running this kind of process on than one where it's uh there is no win loss at the end. And oh, so what's true. So what you're then talking about is like, who's, who's the winner in a game where, the outcomes have this different gradient of possibilities. Yeah. And, and that's where run your ranking learning. algorithm exactly. is super important. Like how do you given some member of this population, how do you say how good it is? Which is just the value system, right? right? So you have to sort of give this, it's like, it feels like the conversation when we switch to talking about genetic algorithms, where you're having this one thing prevail based on a combination of things is like in order to implement that you have to have some sort of value structure even if it's just two exhaust ports is better than one like and everything with one gets disregarded everything with two gets to propagate like is uh we're, is we're, this kind of a uh, have we stumbled upon a proof that there is intrinsic uh rule sets like uh, good and bad. No, I universe. disagree. But there have to be that, in that um, algorithm. Like someone is deciding but, what's a good but outcome. Think about uh, you know genetic algorithms were patterned on evolution by natural selection, right? That was sort of the inspiring metaphor. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, think about the environment that we like. Think about the ranking algorithm that is used on living creatures on Earth. That ranking algorithm is basically pick your time frame, 
how many descendants does this individual have at the end of that time frame? And eventually, like... So if we, as long as we develop AIs that never fear for their persistence <laughs> because of our hardware structures, then we can avoid evil, e evil even AIs? If, even if we had room for every AI the ones that reproduced the fastest would dominate the pot come to dominate the population. I feel like that's a great place to say that people should listen to the third episode of our AI series <laughs> where we reveal all the truths in which we discuss whether we you really have to worry about terminators. strategy about this coming human robot war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Build our EMP turrets. Exactly. Terminators. I mean, a cool thing that people did with um, genetic algorithms these people got a new office space. It was, um, they got three floors of some building, right? So they knew the, the physical layout of their building. And then they defined um, some number of, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you all a link and you put it in the show notes. They defined some number of like constraints, like what makes a good office? Well, um, the people who like to work in the quiet area are in a quiet area. People who like to work in noisy areas are, or, or noisy people are away from those people. Um, you know, people should have access to the bathrooms and kitchens. Um, people should have access to people that they work with on the regular. Um, a couple other sort of statements like that, where if you put down a layout of all the people and stuff in your in your organization in this space, you'd be able to look and say, well, Phil really likes quiet and he's right in front of the front door. This one sucks, right? <laughs> um, and then they ran a genetic algorithm on it. And well, they, uh, yeah, they ran a genetic algorithm on it and it placed everyone's desks and said where the, uh, you know, office kitchen should be and stuff like that. And uh, they could use that to, bypass the blind spots that that they or a hired human designer might have had you know maybe it's like maybe it really makes awesome sense to put the kitchen who knows on the ceiling um <laughs> that kind of gets to an interesting thing that I, I i end up talking about in the context i it's it's definitely come up in the podcast where we talk about you know like uh will things like lawyers get replaced Things like doctors eventually get replaced. And I said, I, I think I said something about you not trusting a doctor that doesn't consult his or her droid. Like <laughs> it's still a thing that we want overseen by humans. You know, you're, you're going to have a hybrid lawyer system where the lawyer is consulting his, his, his or her droid before then talking to the judge. But like, <laughs> Once the legal AI is good enough to, like you just said, it, 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 it may present options you didn't think of, in which case, why not use that tool if it's accessible? Well, the, uh, the interesting place that I think this all goes, and because, because really we're kind of talking about <clears throat> forms of artificial intelligence, artificial decision-making, artificial design, whatever computation, computers doing things kind of on their own. As you, I was thinking while you were describing that office, Alan, my thought was, what if that office AI or that office uh, algorithm said, 
Mm, I'm not going to design an office for you guys because you probably shouldn't be here. There's something better for you to be doing with your time. <laughs> and then and then the lawyer AI is like, mm, don't need lawyers. I'm out of here. We'll just make a judge AI. And then the judge AI is like, mm, don't need me either. I'm just going to make I'm going to make a like executor AI and I'm going to go kill all the people that are about to commit crimes. That classic sci-fi path. And I'm wondering where I can see I can see this like cascading development, this singularity, if you will, where an AI is just spinning out of control until it like discovers what the point of the universe is. And isn't that what happens these... at the end of war games? Uh, <laughs> Where they haven't played tic tac toe until it realizes it can't win, so it gives up. <laughs> <laughs> this game, it does right. It, it's like this game is pointless, <laughs> and it's and they both stop playing, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, thermonuclear war was averted. Um. So one thing that I think about talking about combining, or you're talking about uh, when human and computer intelligence collide. Um, mm. when I saw that video of these people sort of, uh, offloading the design of their, um, office to an AI, um, I thought it would be super cool if the AI presented them with five options, let's say, and they were, and gave them sort of a GUI into being like, oh, this looks cool. And then it sort of riffs on that for a few generations and it hmm. says, okay, here are some like fruitful paths that came out of that. Do any of these look cool? And you're like, yeah. Or you're like, eh, I don't like this. Back up a couple steps. You know, I think that um, humans are good at some things. Computers are good at some things. Um, I mean. We're really good at pattern recognition, but we're not so good at like combinatory mathematics. <laughs> right and, and so if you want to rapidly what we like you know we end up talking like if you if you're trying to if you're trying to decorate a house and you listen to the way that people talk about that stuff it's very it's very i want to say gooey but then that confuses you using right. gooey as slushy user interface yeah, it's slushy. like squishier the squishy. language Right. They talk about how things feel and things are in your gut and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm saying that in a way that makes it sound somehow invalid. But that's probably just because I'm a man. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but it it's is like, amorphous and hard to sort of codify right. into rules. Right. Um, and so the way we currently solve that is with this sort of intuition and pattern recognition. But you can also brute force solve the problem by trying every option. <laughs> And we have computers that are really good at that. And so there's some context where you might really like the idea that that fidelity of problem solving was applied to your data set. Like if you might go to prison for murder otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like, it's the same. It's, it's, it's in that space of like what makes art art. Right. Like there's these layers of complexity that somehow make this drawing or this photo more compelling than another piece. And it's sort of over time just been applied by people explaining what their gut says about that thing and why it's beautiful. Although there's been a lot of philosophy discussing like what I took a couple of aesthetics classes in college where all you talk about is what makes art art. Um, 
Well, there's an interesting thing with art because if you look at uh, like trends in fashion or writing or painting or whatever, <clears throat> there's uh, a constant change that's going on. And unless you are kind of academic about it, unless you kind of take like a sense of maturity to it, what used to be cool or popular or beautiful is not cool or popular or beautiful anymore to say a teenager. They're like, this thing's cool. Dad, you're super lame. And <laughs> so that kind of speaks to uh, the idea that there isn't really intrinsic uh perfection or beauty or correctness to what makes art it's just it's just a familiarity with something that your pattern recognizer has seen over and over again um well and that's why i think that space is really interesting to to apply the kind of stuff that we're talking about his like it strikes me that this is what I was where I was going with the binary outcomes thing before. Like, it's easy to train an AI on a thing that wins or loses, but as soon as there are more details to what constitutes a win or loss, or what gets you to a win or loss, I mean, life is essentially binary, right? You either survive and you take part in the genetic algorithm, or you die. Uh, art is trying to find threads through something that is essentially not tied to that propagation algorithm, but on a slower time scale. It's just an interesting exercise in like, okay, what is, because art, there's no accounting for taste, right? So we have this like inbuilt idea that, well, some people like some things, some don't, not too much judgment here, but certain things propagate. Like your survival doesn't necessarily depend on how successful your art appreciation algorithm is. <laughs> how successfully yeah, it propagates <laughs> it does if you're a famous musician yeah that's true your, your art <laughs> art appreciation algorithm uh gets you a lot of tail <laughs> uh i feel like that's a pretty good place to get out of here thanks for thanks for hanging out man thanks for having me guys yeah always love having you on buddy um thanks to I, I i totally like i was so excited to talk to alan that i dropped the ball <laughs> on all the standard introduction stuff thanks special thanks thanks to everybody for hanging out thank you to our patreon backers for helping keep this thing afloat just follow us on socials and stuff if you follow us on patreon or facebook you'll get the show notes uh, in a thread of when i remember to put them up <laughs> following the release of the episode uh, I'm Adam I'm Brian I'm Alan <laughs> Done pot oh my god <laughs> did you 50 <laughs> UPS yeah you can fly over an elementary school <laughs> <laughs>